This is Greener Grass, a podcast. We are your hosts, Carrie Wee and Kelly McVeigh. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we talked with four warrior women who are surviving and thriving. Annie Slayton from Minnesota, a survivor of three and a half years. Amber Van Ryan from St. Augustine, Florida, a survivor of five years. Julie Moorhead from St. Louis, Ohio, a survivor of two and a half years. We talk about her role at Longer Burger, which was a direct sales company that started in Dresden, Ohio, and very well known in our hometown. If you want to hear more about that, check out episode 12. And last but not least, Keely Gomez-Perry from Pataskala, Ohio. She's a survivor of 13 years. If you are from our hometown, you'll recognize her name. Her family owns Gumas Candies. And to tie it all off, our resident physician, Dr. Janae Davis of Licking Memorial Hospital, brings it all together, lending us her wisdom on mammograms, self-check, and everything boobs and vagina. Also, for the listeners, apologies. We have some technical issues with Zoom. Please forgive us. The internet gods were not on our side that day. All right, let's get started. Today, I have four amazing women here to talk about being survivors of breast cancer and really their journey, their story. And I have to say, when Carrie and I were kind of floating around the ideas of, you know, what we wanted to talk about with upcoming guests, and this came about because it is October as Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I felt sad that I instantly had four, five, six, seven, eight names of women that I know in my network through, you know, working with them before, through connections of other people, someone I went to high school with and cheered with. It made me sad that that is still where we're at and that I still know so many people. And, you know, I've always heard like, we want there to be a time where pink doesn't mean a certain thing, right? That pink doesn't represent something, but right now it still does. And I'm just grateful that all of you decided to jump on, share a little bit about journey, your journey and your story. And I think they're right now that is struggling with it themselves. I think it will give them peace of mind to hear that their feelings are real and normal and exactly what happens. And then two, I think I want people to understand the importance of getting your mammogram to doing the self-assessment, you know, the whole thing, like, I think it is such an important thing. And I think now being 45, when does that start? And when, you know, Keely was really, really young. So I feel like I want to talk about all of those things. First, I would love for you to, you know, we have four, just give us a little background, you know, where you grew up, where you live now, and then anything you want to say about your family and how many kids you have. And we'll start with Julie. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So I'm Julie Moorhead. I grew up in Dresden, Ohio, so not too far from 
Newark. Um, met Kelly when we were both at the same company for a number of years and moved mm -hmm. to Granville, Ohio for a role that I had in Columbus over time. And now just since January of 2020, live in the middle of nowhere in St. Louisville, <laughs> Ohio, um, at what I hope is our forever home. Uh, we I married my high school sweetheart. We've been together since we were 15 years old. He's been my rock through every high and every low. And we have two kids. Anna is 23. And then our son, Joey, is a junior at University of Cincinnati. And so we have now re-empty nested uh, now that COVID at least brings him back to his college campus. So that's where I'm at. Okay. I love that you all have such different stories. Okay. Miss Amber. Thank you again for having me. I am 39. I'm from Fort Lauderdale. My husband played hockey and now coaches hockey. So we have lived in like 22 different cities in North America, which has been kind of fun. We ended up relocating to St. Augustine for the summers. Um, it's a very quaint old town and we love it so much. We have three kids. They are eight, 10 and 12 years old. So very, very busy, um, but just grateful to have them be here for them actually is kind of such a blessing that so many take for granted. And yeah, so thank you for having me. Absolutely. Miss Annie. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. Um, I'm honored to be here with everyone. So I, my name is Annie Slayton. I live in the Minneapolis suburbs. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and we moved to Minneapolis about three years ago. Actually, my husband got a job offer the exact same day I got my breast cancer diagnosis. We uh, picked up and moved with our four kids. My kids are Cora, she's eight, and then Amelia is six, and Henry is five, and Rose is four. Oh, we have three dogs too, so. Busy, that's a busy life right there. Okay, yeah. Miss Keeley. Hi guys, um, I am Keeley Perry. It used to be Gumis. And if you are from the Newark area, you probably know the Miss And that's my family. I live in Potascala now with my husband and two kids. I grew up in the Newark area, Newark Heath. I've been a survivor for 13 years now. And actually I was just telling Kelly this morning, it's ironic that I'm on here right now because October the 3rd, 2008 was my eight hour life-saving surgery. I'm not good at these things. I'm not good at these video <laughs> conferencing or anything, but I did tell Kelly, I, I felt like it was a sign. Yeah. So Keely was the most nervous out of everyone that I texted. <laughs> Part of the reason I wanted to have Keely on was because I feel like she was relatively young. And I just remember when I got the text from her, the whole double mastectomy, everything I felt like taken back because she was my age and it was 13 years ago. So I'm not good at math, but I'm 45. So like, just how old were you, Keely? 32. 32. I was like, I really want you to be on. And she's like, I'm so nervous. And then she's like, but it's actually anniversary in a sense. And I was like, listen, jump on. I won't ask you a million questions when you want to jump on. You can. I'm so happy that you decided to join us, Keely. So my first question is for Amber. How many years are you a survivor? Was it a regular checkup? Did you feel something? Was it from a mammogram? Like how did that happen? So I'm actually five years cancer-free as of last month, which is a huge milestone. I had her two positive only breast cancer. For most people that don't know, you can have estrogen positive, progesterone positive, or this new 
newer type of breast cancer. It's HER2 positive. You can have none or all three or combination of. And the type that I had was is more found, I think, in younger women. And it's the most aggressive type you can have. My kids were three, five, and seven. I was 34 years old. And if you've just had three babies, you're at the doctors all the time having blood work. You think you're super healthy. I remember taking a shower. Actually, we were trying to have a fourth and I kept getting kind of a letdown feeling on the right side. So it made you touch your boob, right? And so when I was washing it, I was like, oh man, that's a very distinct feeling if you've never nursed a baby. And I did feel a lump, but they always say it wouldn't be painful. And mine was, that's what made me want to feel it more often. And I always thought it would be the size of a pea. Mine was 4.8 centimeters. It was huge. So I remember telling my husband, do you think this could be like, should I go to the doctor? And he just said, you're so young. There's no way. Like it's probably a pulled muscle. It doesn't hurt. You'll be fine. And so at 34, I made an appointment with a midwife and she said, I want you to go right now to have a mammogram and an ultrasound. So I did. And as I was leaving to walk to my car, the radiologist called to book a biopsy nobody calls you within 15 minutes of leaving a building. So I, that was like on a Tuesday, they had biopsies on Thursday, the Monday morning to tell me um, that invasive ductal carcinoma. And I started chemo probably within a month of being diagnosed. So it was very, very quick. I'm grateful that it was very quick because I feel like at that moment when that happens, you want to do whatever you can to just start killing it and to get rid of it. But being 34, no one in my family's ever had it surprised at over 80% of breast cancer is environmental, not genetic. Because I think so many of us grow up and assume if no one in your family's had it and you're pretty healthy, you don't ever have to think about it. Don't worry about it. And that's not the case. I have had probably 20 to 30 women that I've been connected with that have been under 40. So they're not even at the age to have mammograms and they've all felt it themselves. So to know your own body, to do a self-exam every time you get in the shower and you have to wash your boobs. I feel like it's the most convenient time. And if there's anything that feels off to go ahead and get it checked because so often it's not what we want to hear. So Amber was chemo, the protocol that they went with to kill the cancer. And that was the direction. Mm-hmm. So my protocol was TCHP Taxotere, carboplatin, progetta, and Herceptin, all four drugs for four months. And then I did the second two drugs for an entire year. And then a lumpectomy and then radiation after that. There are so many things involved, right? But was there a thing about losing your hair or at that point where you like, screw it, I, I, that's the last thing that I'm freaking care about. I mean, listen, all four of you are gorgeous. Right. And I feel like there's this, this whole thing. And then now you're doing this, like, did you care at all? Or did it matter? Anyone that knows me, I have the thickest hair of most people. So when they said your hair would fall out, I assumed, oh, it would be halfway when I was done with treatment and maybe half of my hair would fall out. So I also have more hair than most people. By my second round, it was gone. We would laugh that I was like, I was like human cashmere because the hair was just as, as soon as you touched it, it fell out. And I remember the day that I realized like, this is actually not going to stand my head it was very hard. But by the next morning I was okay. I think it was harder for my kids because you look sick when you lose your hair and you don't before that. So that was when it really set in for them, but you don't have to lose your hair. There are, there's an alternative of cold caps that I have a lot of friends who have done that since then. So the technology is out there to use cold caps. If you really, really do want to keep your hair. Okay. And listen, that's out of all things, probably the 
not the most important question, but I feel like it is something that people think about when you're going through that whole process because you're already devastated. And then that's just like one more thing to think about. Okay. My next question is for Annie. So Annie, when you got the diagnosis, were you alone? Were you, would your husband that helped set up this whole deal for you? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like what, what Mm. was that like? And did you have any prep? Like, did you kind of know that that's the direction it was going or was it just completely new news? So my diagnosis actually, it was tough. So how it all went down kind of a similar situation to Amber in terms of like the radiologist was like hunting me down in the parking lot to get the um, biopsy done like right away. So I got my, my biopsy, all that kind of happened quickly. And then the results were really quick as well. So I woke up this one morning and I felt, I knew that that was the day I was going to be getting the results. And I just had this feeling, I had this feeling inside of me that it wasn't good. And despite what everyone else was trying to you know, like everyone around you is like, it's not cancer. It's breast can- It's breastfeeding related. Cause I was six months postpartum with my fourth. For me that morning, I woke up and I just knew, you know how like health systems um, release, like when you get a test done, like right now, I know like COVID, like if you get a pop, you know, a result or whatever, it posts to your account. Well, I got that posted to my account and it was like the results of my biopsy and it, said in there I honestly don't remember I feel like I'm blanking it out right now but essentially it was it was breast cancer and so this was at like seven o'clock that morning and I lost it I had a panic attack I mean I I had four kids like three of them were sitting outside my young baby was like on my my breast feeding and I my husband was sitting there and I kind of had a panic attack and called my OB and I just said I think that this is breast cancer can you help me with some medicine to like chill me out So she did. And then for like three hours, I sat there and I called the breast surgeon and was like, these, these records were released to me. Could someone please call me and all this stuff. And she was in like clinicals. It was kind of a debacle, to be honest. My parents walked in the door and my husband's like, Hey, Annie, your phone's ringing. And so I answer it. And it was my breast surgeon. And she just said, you know, it sounds like you already know, but it's breast cancer. And they had known it was in my lymph nodes at that point, because when they did the biopsy, they had seen in the ultrasound that the biopsy, or I'm sorry, the lymph node under my left side was a little swollen. So they had taken a biopsy of that side as well. So she said, we know it's in your breast, we know it's in your lymph node, and we've got you booked for scans all day today to figure out how everything else in your body looks. I feel like having a new baby, I mean, did you, did you stop nursing right away? Like, I don't know if that's a silly question. I'm super uneducated about this, right? That's part of the reason I'm doing this. And I said that I wanted to have Janae on at the end. What do you do then? Yeah. That night, thankfully my breast surgeon, who was amazing, by the way, she was really young, a young mom, brilliant. She called me, she knew like I needed those results at night. And she, she told me, you know, the rest of your body's clear. It is in the lymph node. We don't know how much it's in, but we'll find that out in surgery. Cause I was moving in six weeks from Chicago, my whole life. I lived in Chicago. And then I was moving six weeks later to Minneapolis. She's like, we need to get your surgeries done here because that's just we think that's the best process. So a lot of people do chemo first and then surgery. And for me, she was really felt like that was like the best option was to do surgery first. So 
so we booked my surgery for, so that was April 24th. My surgery was May 21st. And she was like, <laughs> um, you should wean your baby, you know, so that when we go in for surgery, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but this is just so me. So she's like, you should wean your baby because when we go in for surgery, the surgery goes better, smoother, isn't as long. So I was like, to just do what I want to do. So I did not wean my baby <laughs> and continued nursing her for the remainder of my four months because I was like, this is it. This is my fourth child. So what if my surgery is an extra hour? But needless to say, my surgery was not that smooth. It was like 10 hours long. And every time they went to do something in there, they, it flooded everyone in the <laughs> surgery room and they had to like re-scrub it. <laughs> I'm laughing because that you gotta laugh. So I had um a complete double mastectomy. And then I had 21 lymph nodes removed from my left side. So my entire like lymph system under my left underarm was removed. And this question, obviously for Keely too, when we get there, double mastectomy, like what is that process? Again, it's kind of like what I asked about, is it at that moment, do you feel lost or do you feel like, screw this, take it all. I have four kids. I think it's a process of both for most people. I really felt convinced. I was like, I'm, I'm going to have a double mastectomy. I will say my surgeon did say, um, a lumpectomy would be an option. However, the tumor that I found, but then on the underside of my breast, I had five satellite tumors that were super, super small. I didn't even know they were there when they discovered those. She said, you know, your, your breast is, it's going to be pretty like deformed. I've heard uh, lack of a better word deformed. So she said, we can do that if that's what you choose. She said, my choice would be at least to do a singular, you know, mastectomy on one side. And I just was, I don't know. I just kind of was like, just do both. I just don't want to deal with it again. I don't even know that it matters, but I didn't want to deal with it again. No, I totally get that. So Julie, we both worked at Longaburger. I feel like Longaburger, do you know we have some Longaburger listeners, right? But it had the Horizon of Hope campaign, which was partnered with American Cancer Society and around breast cancer. And I feel like I know for when I was there too, we were constantly sharing people's stories. And it was something that always inspired me in a way, but also educated women. Did it feel weird that you had played such a part in that campaign and hearing so many women's stories along the way? And then suddenly you have that diagnosis and it becomes part of your journey. Did you relate the two in any way? And then my second question is like, when do you go public? Meaning that in some ways you want to share your story because you want people to know that it can happen to anyone, but you also want to keep it personal in your own space for a while, but you also need everyone's prayers and them to lift you up. And you, I would say very much a public figure because of being a part of Longaburger and then being a part of that campaign did that shift in any way to make it public or not make it public? First of all, I definitely think having had the involvement in that campaign years prior, so decades before my own diagnosis helped me because I did feel really educated about early prevention. 
I think that's what convinced me as a very young mother to be really disciplined about self-exam. And, you know, Amber, I agree, like in the shower, if you're following your monthly cycle, like whatever that is, just get in the habit of doing it. Crazy enough for me. So I was 46 when I was diagnosed. So I'm two and a half years out, um, living for that five-year mark for sure, Amber. Um, and for me, I had zero history, zero family history of it. Didn't feel a thing, total shock that it happened. It came in a mammogram, thank God. And thank goodness somebody was paying attention in that mammogram because when they showed me the year before to the, the new one, I couldn't even see the, the cyst. I couldn't even see the tumor. And thank goodness People are educated and well-trained and pay attention and are on top of their game. It was a complete shock. And in fact, my OBGYN, because it was just my annual regular exam, he called me the week I was headed in and even said, your mom had a history of being cystic. So she always had to have um, liquid cysts drained when I was growing up. And he said, I really have a feeling about this, Julie. It's going to be just like your mom's. You guys don't have any family history. You've always been cystic. So I'd had ovarian cysts rupture a couple different times in the course of my life. And he was very pro, this is going to be nothing major. It's going to be a cyst and, and we'll move on. And so I didn't even have my husband go with me for the results, really thought that um, it was just going to be what we expected it to be. So I got the news of the biopsy uh, by myself. And thank goodness I had the surgeon that I had. Going in, I had known a really well-known surgeon in the area. First, I was a little bit disappointed because she was out on maternity leave. And so I got someone else. And it was such a blessing that I ended up with the, the surgeon that I had. She's been amazing. I can't imagine going through this journey without her. So that all worked out in my favor. My cancer was positive, positive, negative. So I am estrogen positive, progesterone positive positive, H-E-R negative. The best part of my whole experience was they caught it super early, the most common, most treatable type. So if I had to have it in all the grand scheme of things, it was the best option to, to try to go after. And so I had a, a lumpectomy on my right side and they did take uh, 12 lymph nodes. Fortunately, it was not in my lymph nodes. And then I had radiation. So I did not need chemo. And Kelly, you know how I am having always kind of been a career minded woman. I think ladies, I don't know if when you heard the words, you have cancer, you have a reaction in your brain. I don't know if you did or not, but I've talked to other survivors and it's like you see this color in your mind that you can't even describe the feeling of when you hear the word, yes, it, you have cancer. For me, it was such an out of control, out of body experience. And I'm so used to being in control of whether it's my work schedule, my team, what's going on in my life, those types of things. I don't know how to navigate this necessarily right this moment. Clearly, this is not in my control, but there has to be pieces that I can control. And so that's kind of how my brain got through the process of processing the whole thing. Just like you guys, I mean, it was quick. The surgeon gave me the results and told me I had cancer. 
they immediately sent me to the cancer center. I met everybody and kind of knew what my options were. Back to my car after the surgeon, I of course called my husband. He was devastated that I was by myself because I literally told him, do not waste your time. This is not going to be anything. I wish at that point I would have said, go ahead and come with me. But I had no idea that when I got to the cancer center, everybody was going to be lined up to meet with me. And so I was furiously writing notes. I didn't even know what questions to really even ask at that point. Fortunately, I had a couple dear friends that had just gone through the process ahead of me. And so in between appointments, I was texting them immediately. The rally of support from those friends was amazing. I decided that I needed more information before we went public. Communication strategy was in my background, right, Kelly, of of my past experience. I needed to be able to control the message and control the narrative. I didn't want to start communicating until I had details and information because I knew the people that cared about me were going to be like, they want to help, right? And they're going to have all these questions. And then I'm going to internalize that stress because I can't answer those questions for them. And so I was pretty prescriptive in how I went about what am I going to say? Who am I going to talk to? First weekend, it was just my husband and myself, because I really needed to get the plan in place. That's the other area where I think my my natural uh, business mind kicked into gear. That was on a Friday. So Monday, I was back in to solve like, okay, how are we going to go forward? So you're telling me that I need the surgery. What's the recovery? I've got to be out of the country three times for work. Where are we going to fit this in? And so I basically said, okay, here's my surgery window. Here's when I can fit it in. I'll recover. I'll fly back out. Here's the window for radiation. I was working backwards. Our youngest was graduating from high school. My biggest concern were the kids. They were in pivotal points. Anna was going to Italy for study abroad. I didn't want anything to impact her ability to go do that. Joey was getting ready to graduate. I didn't want him to equate his senior year and all these amazing milestones with how sick mom was. And so that really became kind of my big vision. Honestly, say it worked really well. And I felt I was in control of those kinds of pieces of it. Hindsight is always 2020. I wish I would have taken time off of work a little bit. Quite honestly, I worked all the way through it. I would take the first 7 a.m. radiation and go right to the office afterwards, work all day, plan the graduation party. But I think it helped keep my mind focused on positive things versus what I was going through. And I was very blessed because you guys, I can't imagine having young kids feeling as bad as I felt. Um, that takes a whole other level of digging deep, right. And, and going forward, trying to be normal. And so, you know, I definitely felt like there were pockets of people that I didn't communicate with. And I don't feel bad about that because I needed people to help lift me up. I was not in a position to lift other people up because they were, they genuinely cared about me, but they were a mess and that was not helpful to me. And so I kind of had to compartmentalize different things. 
I didn't necessarily just broadcast every detail of everything. I decided that I was going to turn it to a positive. So I genuinely believe that my willingness and ability to deal with toxic people and drama evaporated on the radiation table. I no longer feel guilty for keeping the people in my life that make really add value and getting the people out that don't. I don't feel bad about that anymore. Life is too short. I really focused on other people. So during my radiation session, I prayed for people who were worse off than I was so that I could look at something and be helpful. That truly did save my life. Um, I never could feel the tumor even once I knew exactly where it was. Never could feel it. It was so deep. Even laying down, it wouldn't surface. That was scary to me. And so for me, I think my, my mission is early detection saved my life and it can save yours. No, I love that. And Julie, like, I feel like you have a huge community. So I feel like I like that you, that you thought about it and we can all, as women, I feel like we're all pulling everyone else up. And in that moment, it's not always about everyone else and taking yeah. a moment for you, but it's no surprise to me that you worked the entire time. Keely. Are you there still? You said today when I reached out to you that it was 13 years since you had the surgery. Your mission was to be here for the girls. I know that you had a double mastectomy. Was that your only option or was that take it all, do all the things because I want to be here. And I think that even after the double mastectomy and moving forward, you made other health decisions that were my choice is that I'm going to be here and I want to be here for the girls. My experience was a little bit different. I don't know if it was because it was 2008. It was a while ago and I had just moved to Lancaster. I didn't have my friends. I didn't have my family down there. I didn't have a circle around me yet. I think I had some preschool moms that I was friends with and a couple of neighbors. But other than that, I didn't have a big group of family being 32 years old, I was in complete panic mode when I found out I had a one-year-old and a four-year-old. I didn't feel like I had anybody. My parents were in Florida at the time. I didn't have them. When I got my diagnosis, they just so happened to be visiting at that time. So they had my girls when I found out. And I thought I had had a lumpectomy because they just, they didn't think it was cancer at the local hospital. Nobody thought it was cancer. So I just had a lumpectomy to begin with. They had tested it previously and said that it wasn't cancer. And then once they got in there and started slicing the specimen, they found out that indeed it was cancer. It was actually hiding on the, on the backside of the tumor that they had removed, the lumpectomy. I too went to the doctor's office by myself and I was a lot, I was completely alone. I, my husband didn't think anything of it because we had been told it wasn't cancer. So then when I went back to the doctor's office for just the check on the, on the lumpectomy, that's when they told me I was all alone. I can relate to what you ladies have said. I mean, I fell apart. I couldn't even believe what they were saying to me. And then they were handing me papers and trying to sign things. I didn't even know what I was signing. I called my husband at work and he said, I'll be right there. He like dropped the phone and he's like, I'll be right there. Cause I couldn't even, I couldn't even hold a pencil to sign. That's how traumatic it was 
to be that young. So then I remember getting home and my mom and dad were there. Tony went in and got the kids away and my mom and dad came out on the porch and I just fell to my knees. It was crazy. It was, it was a lonely experience, I guess, then for, for me at that point, because I didn't, nobody was on Facebook. Nobody was like, I didn't have people. I didn't have my, my group of people around me. There was no way to really communicate. I mean, I guess we were texting Kelly maybe or emailing or something weird, not even. It might've been emailing. It yeah. might've actually been an email that I got. Yeah. yeah. Back then it was like, I don't know. It wasn't normal to be on Facebook. It was The kids were on Facebook. But I remember there were a couple people that did reach out to me and say, hey, can you get on Facebook so we can pray for you or whatever? And I remember thinking, of course, like I need all the prayers I can get. I need all the support I can get because I felt really isolated and alone. I didn't have my pink sister group that I do now. Unfortunately, that came later. I hate that I know so many ladies that either supported over the years or we've become close because of breast cancer. You, I know you had a double mastectomy, but then I think that you, from what I know, you did other testing and then you made other choices health-wise. I did not carry the BRCA gene, so that was good. But there was another gene that was mutated. I can't remember exactly what that is off the top of my head, but I was told that they were going to watch that for five years because they wanted to see if it was related to breast cancer. And luckily, after five years, it was not related to breast cancer. But I was told by several different doctors that because of having breast cancer, I had a higher risk of having uterine cancer and and other womanly cancers started having some troubles from either the chemo or the medications that I took afterwards, like the tamoxifen and, and that stuff. I had some swelling in my uterus, so I got a little panicked and talked to some doctors and they recommended that I go ahead and have a complete hysterectomy as well. So I had that in 2010. Luckily, I had had my two beautiful babies and everything was good with them. And I made that decision just because I didn't want to see cancer ever again anywhere, especially after I had the mastectomy. I knew I didn't have any more breast tissue. I was kind of at that point where I was like, just take whatever whatever you can take it out that's going to get cancer because I don't want to see it again. You mentioned the community that all of you are a part of now. I know you're thankful for that community. Annie, this question is for you and I'm sure it's a hard for you to talk about, but I know that you had a dear friend that lost her fight. Do you feel like the community raises you up and obviously you do it all together. We all raise money. We all do the walk. We all do the things, but is it hard to be a part of that community and watch someone lose their life? Yeah. For me, I actually went and shared my entire story, pretty much every ounce of it, every bit of it on social media. And part of it was really for my own selfish benefit was getting the prayers and getting all the good vibes from people, but also I felt like I really wanted to take the opportunity to educate people about breast cancer. Cause at least from my perspective, I also thought, you know, genetics and whatever, and, and we had no cancer in my family whatsoever. So I felt like it was important for me to take the opportunity to help educate other women 
people wanted to hear about it. People kept asking me, like, tell me more. Would you be open to sharing? So I did. And initially had a group of women that I would talk to here in Minneapolis, especially because I was brand new to the area. I, I knew no one. Um, so through my oncologist, they kind of set me up with this group of women. But I found for some reason it gave me more anxiety to hear so many other people's issues and problems and all that stuff. And it that might come off as selfish, but it was just, I think with my four young kids and all the stressors at home and everything, I just couldn't take on so, so much. So what happened is by sharing on social media, I built these like friendships with people, which, you know, again, I think people don't realize social media has so many great benefits and that's one of them. And these friendships became real and probably six of my closest dearest girlfriends I met on social media who all have breast cancer and they, you know, all range from stage four to, you know, early stage. Three of those, three of those women are stage four. One of them, as you just mentioned, Corey passed away a year ago. I think that's the hardest piece of this. And I was kind of thinking about it when you guys were all talking, like, it's like a community you never wanted to be a part of, but you don't know what you would do without it. Like I think about this other girlfriend of mine who, you know, was kind of NED, which is no evidence of disease for several years um, past her stage four diagnosis. And it just came back again. And, it, you know, she's got it under control, but it's that she's my best friend now. And it's, it's just that piece of like, okay, like at some point I'm going to probably have to say goodbye to her. And yeah, it's really, really, really messy. And I think, but there's also something super, I think really beautiful about it too. Like with my friend, Corey, she handled the whole process in my process. I mean, the dying, the process of dying and knowing that that was kind of the, the beginning of the end. She handled it with so much grace and so much beauty. I saw a whole different side that in some ways, and I don't mean to like make this sad, but in some ways it really showed me that if, if, if this were ever to come back and be stage four for me, like I know I'll be okay. Cause I saw her go through that. I know that I'll be okay because watching her go through it, she gave me a glimpse into something that I didn't think I'd be okay with. This whole, I know we're all crying. I'm crying. Sorry. (laughs) I feel like um, something like this in, in a crazy weird way gives you all the emotions because it gives you scared. It gives you angry. It gives you power and strength. It gives you inspiration. It gives you grief. It, encompasses like the whole experience of life. Right. Yeah. I'm so thankful that you all have shared a little bit of your stories. Okay. So last question, and we'll do round Robin. And one thing that you was your takeaway that you learned from having breast cancer from this journey, something you learned about yourself or about life in general, what would it be? Actually, it was something that someone said to me during my biopsy. And it's something that I carried with me. Literally, I still say it to this day is you are going to be okay. And she said it to me during my biopsy. She could just see the sheer look of like terror on my face. And and she said, no matter the outcome, you're going to be okay. And it's just something that, you know, I've held with me. I know. And I think that that's good for all of us to remember every day, all day, but especially if there is someone out there right now that's listening to this and is on the journey right now, newly just has found out or is later that you're going to be okay, regardless of what the path looks like. So going along with what Annie just said, um, 
a few minutes ago about not being able to stay with a group because wanting to be in the group, but not necessarily being able to hear everybody's stories all the time and getting overwhelmed with all of the, the grief and things that go into a group of breast cancer survivors. I learned early on, somebody told me, you cannot compare yourself to any single other woman with breast cancer because everybody's different. Everybody's journey is different. Just because someone lost their battle doesn't mean you're going to lose your battle. Just because I learned very early and and I, I, I don't get together with my pink sisters very often anymore because I think I did the same. I think I kind of straight away, I think we all kind of did um, because it, it does get overwhelming. But that would be one thing that I, I know to this day is you just can't compare yourself to anyone else. And you have to do the best that you can for you and absolutely, you know, do what you know and be your best, be your own advocate and be on top of your body and know your body and know what's going on with it. If there's a change, then you need to, you need to say there is. Be honest with yourself and everyone else about what's, what's going on in your body. No, that's so strong and true. And I feel like looking just at the four of you, really your treatments all were different in some ways, how you found out where you were at in your lives from an age perspective or motherhood perspective, completely different, how you did, you know, followed through the next few months, whether it was working or not working or nursing when they told you not to, or that we all have to do our own path and figure it out for ourselves. No regrets, right? You always figure it out in some way. I wanted to add to onto what Annie said. Um, two of my best friends that I knew before had said exactly what Julie said. They had helped give me questions. So they said, when you go in, you're not even going to know what to ask to get the answers that you need. So these are what I need you to ask. Do they have a tumor board? Do they have, you know, all of the questions from words I had never even heard of in my life. So if someone is diagnosed, find a previous survivor, get questions for you to have a guideline when you get in there. And both of those women have had their breast cancer go to their brain. And at first it was so scary, but at the same time, one had it happened a year ago. One had it happened seven years ago. And we had dinner last night. We had margaritas to be able to see them happy and laughing. Like, I think all of us, when we got that first diagnosis, you were like, I can't do this. I'm not that strong. And the Lord gives you such an incredible sense of strength and peace. And even if it were to go on, you would still have that strength and peace. And just like you said with Corey, it is hard at first because it's the unimaginable, but to be around those people who are still thriving and still so happy, I really do think gives me so much inspiration that they're the technology, the medications, the studies are progressing so fast. It is so inspiring, I think, to just see what they can do and listen to the treatments that they have and, you know, all the different options of things that help them live really well for a very long time. And with breast cancer, a cure is not here, but there is treatment to help you last live for a very, very long time. And that, that is incredible. But if I could post, like, what would be your 10 questions that you would want to ask, you know, if you want to send like what questions you would think would be important for someone in that moment, because I think obviously like from this, I hope people know to do the self-assessments in the shower whenever they can, 
not whenever they can all the time to, to make sure you're having your mammograms and, you know, following through with that, following through even with what the doctor suggests after the mammogram. And then three, what questions do you ask when you're in that moment? Because it is true. Your mind, I'm sure is a blank slate and you don't even, that moment's probably the hardest. When I listen to your stories, that moment, it sounds like is the hardest part of the whole thing. Getting the email and reading it before you're prepared, being there and not expecting to hear that answer. Like, I mean, I know there's a lot of hard parts, but that sounds like a really hard moment. Do you have something, Julie, you want to say? Yeah, just a couple things. I think first, it's okay to not be okay. You're going to have good days and bad days. Also okay to ask for help because I think you don't have to figure out how to solve it all by yourself. I think I definitely learned that as well. It was okay to be vulnerable and okay to lean on other people when I wasn't used to having to do that. I think the biggest thing for me is attitude was everything. And so I would give in to the, all the feels, right. And, and have a down day and just be miserable and cry and be mad and feel it all. But I really had to focus on the positive attitude and the can do spirit and like, let's go kick this thing to the curb kind of thing. And so for me, it was having these mantras that I would tell myself. And one was victor, not victim. And the other was warrior, not worrier. If I said those two things once, I said them 200 times a day sometimes in the really bad days. But I was like, I am not going to let this horrible thing bring me down. And I will beat this in the end. And so that was really important. And then Kelly, one thing that I'll send you, one of my very dear friends, Um, sent me this book and it's called how breast cancer is like a dandelion. And it's written by an, a local doctor in Columbus. I will tell you, this was the most helpful resource to me because as I started trying to get my head around to your point, Amber, like words, you've never heard before drugs. You've, you can't even repeat the name of it. Right. And so this, it has like a glossary of terms. They take all of the technical pieces and they break it down into really layman's terms, great examples and how we, we keep our cars in tune. It equates to your body and what's going on in it during the cancer process. It was one of the most helpful things. And so that's kind of what I took away was what can I do to help any friend of mine or even any person I I don't know, but I meet through this journey. I buy this. I keep them in stock quite honestly on my bookshelf because it's sad to me that I've had to send out so many, right? Like we've, we've all commented about how many people we've encountered, but if it can help me, I know it can help other people. I I don't get endorsed by this at all, but it just, it's one of those, you can get it on Amazon, but it was genuinely one of the most priceless gifts I received during my whole journey that continues to be helpful. I'm so grateful for all of you taking your time. I know you have families and kids and it's a Sunday afternoon, but I'm so thankful that you were all here to share your stories, what happened, what you learned, and just in general to educate and give awareness to all things. So 
Thank you so much, ladies. I appreciate you. We started this episode with some breast cancer survivors that shared their story, their journey, and we wanted to bring it back to a little education just about what to look for, what's important and what to know. So Janae, thank you for joining us. I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, thank you for having me. I am all things breast and vagina. I love it, talking about it all day, all day long. You know, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. As a gynecologist, a lot of times I think people think that we actually treat breast cancer, but really we're the ones who find it on most people because we are talking to people about screening. And then once you get this devastating diagnosis, then you're kind of passed along from your gynecologist to an oncologist or to a radiation oncology doctor or a surgeon or things like that. So I'm just going to talk about the gynecology piece of how it is that we find this, how it is that we track this, how it is that we take care of ourselves and our bodies. The first thing that I want everyone to understand is that when we talk about something that's screening, whether that is breast screening, colon screening, skin cancer screening. What that means is I'm not trying to find something that you could find yourself. What I'm trying to do is to find something before you would know that it was there. And the reason why we want to do that is because we want to be able to impact you in a way that is optimal for treatment. So when we talk about breast cancer screening and people talk about mammograms, it's so willy nilly when you're depending on who it is that you're talking to, because there's a lot of different governing bodies of surgery, governing bodies of radiology, governing bodies of gynecology. And we all kind of have our different take on how often a person should have screening. So a screening test is done according to being able to find something earlier. So if you think about that, an agency that deals with cancer all day is probably more conservative, right? Because they are like, hey, we want to make sure that this is what we deal with all day. We want to make sure we find it. There's the least conservative group, which is the U.S. Preventative Task Force. U.S. Preventative Task Force looks at strictly data saying, how are we impacting the outcome of a person? If we screen them earlier or later, how does that impact how many people are going to live or die from this diagnosis. And that's their perspective. So whenever you talk to a person and say, when should I get my mammogram done? That's guiding some recommendations. So I think it's really important for people to have a specific conversation with their provider to talk about their family history and where we sit emotionally, you know, how how we feel about um, how important this is in our lives, um, how comfortable we are doing our own exam, things like that, so that you get the right answer. Short version. If you ask my governing body, which is the gynecology group, it's about every one to two years until you're 50, from the time you're 40 till you're 50. And then after you're 50, you get it every year. If you're looking at the American Cancer Society, they want you to get it every year after 40 until you're like 75 years old. If you look at somebody who's in a U.S. Preventative Task Force, they say no more often than every two years until you're 50, and then get it every year after 50. So the take-home point is the most conservative means that at 50, you need to be getting your mammogram every year. The reason we say every year instead of every five years, for example, or every 10 years, is because if you do an exam on yourself, if we do your mammogram every one to two years, the most common breast cancer that's going to happen, which is a ductal carcinoma, you will not be able to feel it. We can impact you before you would be able to feel it. If we waited five years, that breast cancer would be big enough that you would be able to feel it, then we're not doing you any service, right? So what I always tell people is, hey, 
if we can get you in for this screening every one to two years, we have a really, really good chance of catching something that's microscopic, which would save you on the treatment end. And that that's the benefit. I'm going to talk that self-breast exam for a little bit because, again, I'm old and I've been doing this for 20 years and we really were like all things self-breast exam. But honestly, there's a lot of governing bodies now that say really the self-breast exam is not necessary for pathologic diagnosis or for you to actually find something that is the most common breast cancer. That was so difficult for me to swallow as a provider when it first came out, because the reason why they say that basically is because we aren't impacting women in a way that is beneficial from a survival standpoint. What do I mean by that? What I mean is a lot of women are not consistent about doing their self-breast exam. When they hear that their girlfriend had breast cancer or their mom had breast cancer or something, then they start, oh my God, they run home and I'm going to press on my breast and I've done it myself. Oh my God, I better do my breast exam. They start pushing on their breast all and find us something that's been there for 50 million years. Then they run to their gynecologist or family practice. Oh my God, I found a new mask, but it's not new. The provider feels obligated then to schedule some sort of imaging. The imaging shows maybe a cyst. We go through a biopsy and here we are impacting a woman for something that's benign or that's been there for a really long time. That's why um, it's not necessarily recommended that you do it so that we diagnose somebody with something that we wouldn't have seen on mammogram. However, I am all things breast and vagina, and I think that us knowing about our health is super, super important. And for us to feel empowered and for us to feel like we are participating in what's happening with our bodies, I think it is important. So for any woman out there who wants to know how to do an appropriate self-breast exam, please ask your provider next time you see them, hey, I need, can you show me exactly how to do this? Because there is a right way and a wrong way. We don't lift our fingers off the tissue when we're doing an exam. We either go in a circular fashion or we go up and down so we don't miss something. We only do the exam after a certain part in our menstrual cycle, because right before your menstrual cycle, you're going to be really lumpy because your progesterone is high. That's different for people that are postmenopausal. That's different for people that are on birth control. That's different for a lot of different situations. For those who want to be consistent about it and be really proactive about your health, I would say you want to get instructed appropriately with your provider on how to do that. Uh, But I just do have to say out loud that it is not technically recommended for people to randomly just be pushing on your breast. And funny story, my little teeny weenies here, my little A cups that I love so much, uh, look like little cones whenever I like bend myself down to brush my teeth, but whatever. I was doing my own exam and I've been doing this for 20 years and was like, oh, oh. I feel something, oh, oh, never mind, that's my rib. <laughs> you want to make sure that you are consistent about what it is you're doing and how often you do it and that you're instructed appropriately from your provider on how to do that. And like I said, I think it gives you just a sense of empowerment and, hey, we need to pay attention to our bodies, you know, not just whenever once a year when we go to the doctor. Again, I'll talk about the end of our time for mammograms. Yes, we want to keep getting a mammogram until you're about 75. And after that, it's a conversation. You know, hey, where are we at in our general health after 75? Do we have so many other medical problems that we wouldn't tolerate treatment for breast cancer? If the answer is no, I'm totally fine, then we completely continue to do breast exams in the office as well as mammograms for any person who wants to continue with potential treatment. So that's my little feel on mammograms. I'm happy to answer anything that you have to ask me, Miss Kelly. Super excited about it. That was perfection. I feel like it really is just, you know, I'm getting to be that age and listen, I've had that 
same thing happened with you, Dr. Davis, that I had, um, I had that cyst moment and had a little biopsy. So I think it is, you know, you mentioned in the upcoming podcast that you're, you joined, it's really important for us to know our own bodies consistently so that when, that we're not surprised by something that, that could have been there for a really, really long time. And I think it is important for people to know the importance of seeing their gynecologist, right? Seeing your gynecologist and getting mammograms when the time comes. Sure. And one other thing I wanted to add in there. So when I'm doing an exam with a patient, I'm pretty like, we're not barely feather touching your breast here, sisters. Like we are down in it. Like that's my job all the way to the rib. Like, what do we feel here? I want to be clear because anytime someone sees something on a mammogram or my doctor felt something, it doesn't mean it's bad. There are cysts that are in women's breasts all the time. They are mobile. They are round. They are smooth walled. They are, they feel very consistent in an exam. I want you to know, especially I have people come in, their daughter was 16 years old. Somebody found a cyst happy for you. It's a cyst. Once a cyst has decided to be a cyst, it doesn't change its mind and decide to be cancer later. So some people are like, I want that out of there right now. No need. It is a cyst. It is just a smooth walled fluid filled little structure there. That's just going to be there. Why we would take a cyst out of a person, particularly in a really young person is if you are teeny weeny Janae Davis, if you have a cyst that was one centimeter and six months later, it's two centimeters and six months later, it's three centimeters and six months later, it's three and a half centimeters. That's half of my breast ladies. That's half of my breast. <laughs> so maybe for somebody who's 17, you don't want them to have such a cosmetically impactful surgery later. And so maybe we would recommend that you remove it, not because we think it's cancer, but because, hey, that's half of her breast. And if we don't take that out as it continues to get bigger, it might be impactful. Same thing for someone who's in their 40s like me. If you see something on your mammogram, it's called a BIRAD3, and they say, you have a cyst, and I need to repeat your ultrasound in six months. It's not because you are walking around with potential cancer for six months. It's because I want to make sure that it's stable and not growing and not going to impact you in a, in a negative way later because of its benign features. I do get people who come in with a high, high, high level of anxiety. No reason not to if you don't understand it. But when someone says it looks benign, we are required to offer you retesting in six months to make sure that it didn't go get bigger, but not because we think it's going to turn into something bad. Okay, I thought of one question. If someone does have family history, do you as a physician want them to start things like mammograms ahead of time or does that change? how you work with them. So there's different ways that we categorize people who have family history. So a first degree relative to you would be your mother or your sister. A secondary relative would be your grandmother or your aunt, something that's further away from you. So if you have a first degree relative who was under 50 when they had their cancer, then we want to start at minimum screening you 10 years before the first time they had their cancer. So they were 47 when they had their cancer, then we would start screening at 37. Insurance companies are a little bit wonky and I always don't get me started about insurance right now, but that, yeah, don't even, you probably know, there'd be a lot of F-bombs dropped on that if you yeah. talk to me about it. If you were from somebody in the cancer society, they would say, hey, let's get a baseline screener at 35 for a person who has high family history, right? And then if it looks normal, we can go ahead and start again at 40. But if it doesn't, then we need to follow something, for example. When you're talking about somebody who has genetic predisposition in their family, a lot of people are under the impression because I had two grandmothers and a great aunt who all had breast cancer and they were 80. 
that doesn't make a person high risk for breast cancer. We as women walking around have a one in eight to one in 11 to 12 risk, lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. That's over 10%. And the biggest risk factor that we have is getting older. So if you're looking for someone to have a genetic predisposition for that, you're not interested in somebody who had three ants who were over 60, because give me a break, like how many aunts did we have that had like 16 people in their family, 16 siblings in their family, right? What I'm looking for is that one person who was 48, what the heck is she doing? And then she also had a great aunt with ovarian cancer. That's what I want to talk about. That person might need to have blood work to determine, are you at higher risk for having breast cancer because of your genes? Now, when we do genetic testing on a person, we are not omniscient. We don't know every single one of the gajabillion genes that are running around in people, right? And we recognize that in our medical community. So we say, hey, listen, sister, I'm getting ready to test about 25 to 35 top genetic mutations that are running around in families that make you increased risk for breast cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, because a lot of those syndromics run together. Like if you have a BRCA mutation, people know it as BRCA. If you have that mutation, you don't just have increased risk for breast cancer, you have increased risk for ovarian cancer and other things like that. Or if you have an increased risk for bladder cancer, it may not be just bladder cancer. Maybe it's increased risk for bladder and pancreatic. So we look at those genes. If when we get the result back and it's a green, yes, green for go mama, that means I have no mutations. That does not mean that when I type in your demographics, like, hey, how many people in your family had it? How old are you? Did you breastfeed your children? Did you use birth control? Um, What age did you first start your period? All these different things. Have you had a biopsy on your breast? When I type that into my risk assessment, you may have a lifetime risk, even with no genes, that's higher than 20%. If your lifetime risk for breast cancer is higher than 20%, then I may offer you, or your insurance may say, okay, don't get me started about insurance. Your insurance may say, okay, for increased screening, which would mean, yes, I'm going to do a mammogram every year, but I'm also going to alternate that mammogram with MRIs every year. So what does that mean? It means a mammogram in January, MRI in June or July, mammogram in January, MRI in June or July, so that you don't go more than six months without some type of imaging because you're increased risk, not because you have a specific genetic mutation that I actually located, because again, we're not omniscient, so we didn't test every single gene. So maybe there's something else that we're learning through families that like, hey, we don't have it marked out right now, but this is wonky, my favorite word, this is wackadoodle. Like, what are we doing here? This was absolutely perfect. I so appreciate you. I mean, I think Carrie and I want to make you our residential physician. All things vagina, we're going to have you on. So I so appreciate you yeah. taking the time to do this thing that we need to talk about more. And this is the month to do it. Thank you so much to Annie, Amber, Julie, Keely, and of course, Dr. Janae Davis. We appreciate your honesty and being vulnerable for our audience. It is just an inspiration to hear from you guys. And we feel so lucky that you came on the podcast today. If you're wondering about the book uh, reference that Julie made, How Breast Cancer is Like a Dandelion by Dr. Joseph Hofsmeyer. I've left a link in the show notes if you'd like to go to Amazon and purchase that book. All right, guys. Thanks so much to Asa Watkins for post-production. And if you are one of our listeners, please leave us a five-star review or a comment 
on the podcast. We really want to hear from you guys. Uh, thanks for being with us. And this is the Expecting Ariel's podcast. Mm-hmm.